uh, the letter of James, uh, that whole series, we're, we're done with James and we're moving forward to the Gospel of Luke. And so today's sermon is just an introduction to the book. And so um, for those of y'all who have joined us that are visiting, thank you for coming out. And um, I'm going to see if this lapel is on. Am I on? One, two. I'm good. All right. Amen. So thank God that y'all came safe. I'm thankful for that. I know uh, some folks were asking if we were going to open up or not, but uh, thank God for salt. You know, uh, so we got salt on the sidewalks and in the parking lot. God provided us uh, someone who could actually salt our whole parking lot. And so we were able to still have service here today. And I want to thank our visitors for coming and supporting us. Uh, if you want more information about us, you can go on our website or you can talk to me or Wayne afterwards and we can fill you in on what God is doing here uh, in this season. Uh, but it's definitely been a year of blessing for us. Uh, we moved into this building on July 4th. And uh, we've been here since and have been able to pay the bills by God's grace. You know, so God's been providing for us and we've been able to reach our community uh, and even uh, some folks throughout the neighborhood that we've ministered to. And um, so I'm just, I'm just really thankful for what the Lord has done and continues to do in the midst of our church. And so thank you for visiting us. And I hope that you're encouraged today. I hope that you're well informed on this uh, gospel that God has given us through the author. So our text for today is going to be Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's what we're going to cover today. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4 is our passage. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. God, to you be the glory, to you be the praise. May you be glorified, Father. May I be preoccupied with your glory, your worth, your majesty. God, this is information. This is, we're digging into the author. We're digging into some, uh, even an outline in a sense. And I just pray, God, that we would be encouraged through it. God, give me the means to worship uh, through preaching, God, to exalt you. And I pray for those that are listening, Father, that they will be alert and ready to hear your word. So help us both to glorify you in the preaching and in the listening of your word. To you be the glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we're in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Praise the Lord. We are here. We're going to be here maybe for another three years. Uh, and so yeah, three years, and uh, some people criticize that. They think, you know, we could do a better job going through it, but I think we could do a better job just taking our time through the Word of God. You know what I'm saying? We can't just rush through it, because this is the Word of God. It's inspired by God. 
The author of this gospel is Luke, who was called by Paul in Colossians 4.14, the beloved physician. All right, and so this is who the author is. The book doesn't actually name its author, but tradition has held that it was Luke the physician who authored it. Okay, so Irenaeus attributed the gospel to Luke the physician, and he also called him a follower of Paul. We see that in the book of Acts. And the title, according to Luke, appears in the best of the earliest copies that we have. So actually, the earliest copies we have will say the gospel of Luke on them. Some suggest that that practice, that titling of a manuscript, was actually second century, right? One highlight of Luke is that he was a Gentile who occasionally traveled with the Apostle Paul, which also brings up the important point that it was Luke who authored the book of Acts, which we will get into after we get into the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to do Luke, and then afterwards we're going to do the, uh, the book of Acts together. You know? And so one other uh, fact is that this is actually the longest book of the New Testament and the 12th longest book of the entire Bible. The Gospel of Luke has 19,482 Greek words in it. So it shows us how good of a scholar Luke was when he penned it. Some say it was written 50s or early 60s A.D., and so there's some debate on that. But overall, this gospel, the first four verses we read, it, it starts with the prologue to the book. And so a prologue is an opening to an account or story that establishes the context and gives details about the writing. And so the first four verses of the book contain the prologue for the gospel that we just read. Then afterwards, you'll see an account of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus. Both are born, and Luke points out Jesus as presented in the temple. You actually see this in Luke chapter 2. The account of Jesus as a boy, which is the only account we have of his youth, is found in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Um, he also takes into account the genealogy of Jesus uh, in Luke 3. Which, by the way, uh, is from his adoption into the family of Joseph since Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So it's actually Joseph's uh, lineage and background, not Jesus's, uh, you know, because he was born of a virgin. And so what would happen was people that were adopted into the family would actually reap the benefits of that family, even some of the benefits that came from its genealogy. Then the ministry of Jesus is inaugurated in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Jesus first begins his ministry in Luke 4, 14 to 15, where it reads, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went, went out throughout, through all the surrounding country, and he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. So then afterwards, from chapters 4 through 8, he performs miracles, he preaches in synagogues, he teaches, he draws his disciples, and he even confronted the religious elites of his day. Which, by the way, if you dig into it, Jesus wasn't really all that nice like we all, you know, sometimes think. He was very confrontational to those who needed confronting. People that thought that they were God's gift to Israel, or God's gift to the world. Jesus came and really put the religious elites in their place. And that's also an important point to make because sometimes we think that our theological correct, correctness or, 
you know, because the, he, Jesus even said, be, do what they say, but don't do what they do. And Jesus confronted them constantly, not just in this gospel, but even in the gospel of John, throughout the other gospels, Jesus was adamant about rebuking those who said they were religious but were far from God. And so Jesus begins his ministry here in chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke also highlights the role of women in the ministry of Jesus. And Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, soon afterward, he went on through cities, it says, and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and it says, many others who provided for them out of their means. So Luke will show us the role that women played in his ministry. Women played a vital role in the ministry of Jesus to support his ministry, to provide Jesus what he needed. So I'm sorry, if you're a fundamentalist here, uh, Jesus used women for his glory. Has used women and will continue to use women in the church. So then from chapters 9 through 19, Jesus travels continuing his ministry to Jerusalem. In Luke 19, 11, it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, it says, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Then he gives a parable afterwards actually to correct the mistaken view of the kingdom. And after he enters into Jerusalem with some call the triumphant entry, he goes in there in preparation for his death. Then from chapters 19 to 21, we see a preparation by Jesus to his disciples for what was about to happen to him. In chapter 22, Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus, while he prepares their last supper together and afterwards, he's given over to be crucified. Then he's buried in chapter 23, but is shown to resurrect in chapter 24, where he appears and ascends to be with the Father. In our seminary class, we use a textbook called Encountering the New Testament, and it gives us some points about, you know, this book, some summary points. Luke's procedure in writing his gospel included gathering information, checking the evidence, verifying the sources, evaluating critically, and arranging the material in an orderly manner. So Luke organized his gospel for a theological purpose and arranged the story accordingly, starting with the prologue and then discussing the early years of Jesus, his years in Galilee, his trip to Jerusalem, and his time in Jerusalem. And then he emphasized, Luke emphasized the comprehensive nature of God's dealings with the world from the beginning of the human race to the resurrection of Jesus. Bear with me. I know this is a lot. Jesus is seen as the savior of the world in Luke. Luke gives special emphasis to the early life of Jesus, and he demonstrates how Jesus treated women differently than the dominant culture did. This is revolutionary. In his day, and we'll get into this, the way Jesus treated women, in spite of what the culture said he was supposed to do, shows you how revolutionary Jesus actually was. The Holy Spirit plays a central role in the Gospel of Luke and continues to be emphasized in the book of Acts. 
One last thing to remember is that the book is now written in chronological order. It is written in topical order, meaning that Luke wanted to present the events in a way that was structured within a topic or having a topic in mind. This would help the reader better understand the whole ministry of Jesus' ministry in a way that can be comprehended. So I'm a Marvel fan. I don't know if you know that. I like Marvel movies, right? Nick is like, yeah, that's what we do. You know what I'm saying? We go opening night, get the best seats. Some of these movies, the way they're arranged is they actually show you in the beginning what happens at the end, right? So they'll give you a scene in the beginning of something that happened at the end, and then, so they have some, something in the beginning, and then they work the story to show you how it got to that point, right? And so that's a way of emphasizing a point in a narrative or in a story, you know, that really is a way to grab the listener's attention. And so sometimes, you know, I wonder why do they have that in the beginning? That happened at the end, but they're making a point that they're gonna show you why Thor is there tripping or Spider-Man, whoever the case is, you know what I'm saying? Like, you'll see the beginning, something that happened at the end, and then the story build up to why that happened in the first place. Luke kind of does that in this gospel account. And so our outline for today, we're going to cover verses 1 and 2 there. We're going to see written from eyewitnesses' accounts. Written from eyewitnesses' account in verses 1 and 2. Point number 2, written to Theophilus, verse 3 written to Theophilus in verse 3, and then written to give certainty in verse 4. And that's really going to be what we're going to chop today. Written with, uh, to give certainty in verse 4. So written uh, from eyewitness accounts, written to Theophilus, written to give certainty is what we're going to cover today. So Luke begins with telling the reader in our first point, that many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among them. He mentions that many, a great amount, in other words, of people had attempted to organize an account, a narrative of the things that took place. Some of the early church fathers viewed the compiling of what took place outside of the Gospels as rash attempts that failed. Eusebius actually used that language. Ambrose, another early church father, said, Now they who have attempted to set forth these things in order have labored by themselves have not succeeded in what they attempted. And the reason why is because we know that this gospel is inspired by God. Others have said that attempts to compile what happened in the life of Christ were vain simply because God the Holy Spirit only set out to give inspiration to the copies that we have today. But not only was Luke written distinct from the attempt of what others tried to do, Luke actually sought eyewitnesses and ministers of the word to compile his writings. We see that in the first verse. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Eusebius also said that Luke is a sure witness because he obtained his knowledge of the truth either from, from St. Paul or the instructions of the traditions of the other apostles who were themselves eyewitnesses from the beginning. And this is very important. An eyewitness is, is one who has personally seen an event and thus has personal knowledge and can be expected to attest to the occurrence or to the event that they saw. So this is someone who saw with their own eyes the things that Luke is writing in his account. 
Luke sought sources that may have included the mother of Jesus, people who were healed by him, etc. He's talking to people who saw Christ. And that's why I have a lot of criticisms with other writings of other religions. We don't have as even the accuracy or even the, 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 the witness accounts, right? Like, I'm not going to get into the other world views, but when you look at the Bible and you look at how it was put together and you look at its claim and you look at the very fact that Luke here is writing from eyewitness testimony. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me chill. But Luke makes the very important point that his account does not come from myths and questionable sources, but it comes from verified sources. Eyewitnesses who had seen for themselves what took place from the beginning. So not only did Luke collect information from eyewitnesses, he also collected information from ministers of the word, it says. And by minister, Luke means servants or those who have served with their hands. That's the literal translation. Luke is speaking of those who serve the word, the gospel, the good news. It means to serve with their own hands. The word, uh, you know, serving the word with their own hands, it says. But it also, it's someone who has authority to serve with their hands the word of God. So this word actually is translated guards, attendants, officers, servants, assistants. And so Luke was speaking of men who served the word themselves, who had the authority to do it, ministered who delivered it to others. The NASB translated the, uh, verse 2 of Luke 1 just as they were, it says, handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so the handing down here mentioned in Luke 1, 2 was a technical term that meant a transmission of reliable documents or reliable oral accounts. So Luke practiced here a method of establishing a reliable account by recording from eyewitnesses and ministers to give Theophilus an orderly account, a reliable account of the life of Jesus. Yeah. Our second point written to Theophilus in verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke carefully investigated all things from the beginning for the account that he wrote. And so the Greek verb for followed in our text means investigated. It actually was metaphorically used to speak of those who would, quote, tread in the footsteps of others that nothing may escape them. So Luke was careful to include how meticulous and tedious he was in collecting the information needed to give an orderly account to Theophilus. So it was fitting for Luke, being that he was the beloved physician who was educated and concerned with an accurate account to investigate from the beginning the things concerning Christ. Luke walked in the footsteps of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word investigating what they had witnessed. That's what he's saying. So the purpose for Luke doing this was to write an orderly account for someone named Theophilus. So who was Theophilus? And this is a debate. I know some of y'all already posted something on my Facebook when I asked the question. Some of y'all might be wrong. I'm just saying. Don't get offended. But some have suggested that Theophilus wasn't a person, but a people. Theophilus comes from two words, Theo, God, and Philo, love, which means loved of God. Some have said that it was a title to address the people of God who are loved by God. 
But me, along with many other scholars, do not think it's talking about a people group because of Luke's use of most excellent when addressing Theophilus. So Luke in the book of Acts records how the title most excellent was used. Do you know that it was used twice in the book of Acts to speak of Felix and also to speak of Festus, who were actual people? And so the title given to Theophilus may even point to the fact that he might have been a Roman official. We're not sure, but it seems that Theophilus was in good social standing because of the title given to him by Luke to be most excellent. Bear with me. Some of y'all, if you got to get coffee, go ahead, go do that. Theophilus was also the one Luke wrote to when he wrote the book of Acts. If you go to the book of Acts, verses 1 and 3, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book meaning the account we're reading, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So there's debate whether Theophilus was actually a believer. We don't know if he was Christian or not. And the debate comes from how one is to understand the word taught in verse 4 of our text. Some say that the word could mean inform instead of teach. And so the debate is, did Theophilus sit under teaching or was he just informed? I tend to lean that Theophilus was a non-Christian. I know this is on YouTube, so I'm probably going to get a lot of criticism for that. I think it's because of how most excellent is used in the book of Acts. It's used to describe non-believers. So a non-believer could be called most excellent. Matter of fact, uh, a dictionary, a Bible encyclopedia says it is impossible to determine which understanding is more likely since the evidence makes good sense from either perspective. So we really can't know, but we do know this. Luke wrote an orderly account of the things that happened in the beginning where Jesus appears and begins his ministry. And the intent, which is most important for us today, the intent for him writing this book that he wrote to Theophilus is to give certainty of what took place from the beginning. That's the point here. Is that he wrote to give certainty to Theophilus of the things that either he was informed of or taught, which is our last point, written to give certainty. Are you certain that what you believe is true? We talked about this last time, like, there's a, it just hits different when you have someone who's convinced, who believes what they believe. They're out in the street talking to someone, right? They're sharing the gospel. They're not just passing tracts. I'm not against that. But it's easy to pass a track and say, God bless you. But it hits different when you have someone say, yo, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you about Jesus. Can I, can I have just 10 minutes with you, bro? You know, uh, I went with a brother a couple times downtown and you know, uh, Dennis, Brother Dennis, uh, he's from uh, Westminster, or uh, uh, Wheatland Presbyterian. He's a good brother. And Dennis is short. He's probably like this short. Everybody's short to me because I'm tall, but he's like that short, right? So me and Dennis go out, and we hit the street, and we're talking, and <clears throat> I, I know myself. I'm six foot three. I got a big beard. People think I'm Muslim all the time, you know, and it's, it's true. When I come up to somebody and say, I want to talk to you, it's different. <laughs> it's different. 
They're like, yo, I ain't got no money, or you know, they'll say, you know, whatever. They'll feel like uncomfortable. So I let Dennis start it off. Like, Dennis, you spark it off, and then I'll jump in. And he asked me, like, why don't Lowe's, why don't you? And I said, bro, like, when I go to people, they feel very uncomfortable with me just by my appearance. Right? I don't go suit and tie. I got my Tim's on, I go out there looking chilling, right? And they don't think I'm a Christian at first glance. So I let Dennis go in, and then once he gets the conversation going, then I go in and be like, yo, let me talk, you know what I mean? And then we talk. Um, when we conversate with people, when we're face-to-face -face with people, it's important that you understand that information about God and having the right information is not enough. It's not. It's not. We're giving you systematic theology. We're giving you, by God's grace, hopefully, me and Wayne are giving you solid preaching. We're praying for that. But is your heart certain, convinced, worshipful, desperate to see someone come to faith? I believe this is why Luke wrote this to give the even if Theophilus was a believer I'm pretty sure Luke wrote it to convince him that these things happen that the resurrection isn't fable the resurrection was literal he actually rose from the dead I believe that well when's the last time you saw anybody else rise from the dead well when's the last time God ever became a man and was born of a virgin are you certain of your faith? This is important for us. This is a good question for us. He said in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So when Luke speaks of certainty, he's talking about possessing information having knowledge with a degree of thoroughness or competence for the purpose of sharing it. I can't wait till we see the book of Acts. The book of Acts is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. They're doing church. They're sharing all things in common. They're, they're broke. They'll have nothing, but they're giving each other everything. You know why? Because they were convinced. Yeah. They had certainty of the things that Luke is talking about here. Yeah. Luke wants to give Theophilus an orderly account that can attest to what the eyewitnesses saw and what the ministers of the word were declaring. But also, since we are his church, we have discovered these writings as God's inspired word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I'm hoping that Luke messes you up. That it challenges you. That it convicts you. That it brings correction, training in righteousness. This is what Luke is out to give. He's out to give assurance of what was told about Jesus Christ. 
So what does Luke tell us about Jesus? Well, first, the birth of Jesus. And Luke 1, 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32 of chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Filling the Davidic promises, Jesus would sit on the throne, promise to David and his offspring, and there will be no end to that kingdom. Jesus fulfilling that. I don't know if you know, but he's alive and he's sitting on the throne right now in victory. He's alive and well. And he's ruling and he's reigning. His birth was foretold. Second, he was born of a virgin. Luke 1, 34 through 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, the Son of God. Born of a virgin, breaking the curse of sin, Jesus lived a sinless life. Now that's a mystery. I don't know, nobody even can scratch the surface to the incarnation, because like, how can the infinite, most holy God cram himself up in a womb? How can that be possible? The great mystery of the incarnation, but it happened. So that he can die on the cross. That's why John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Third, the genealogy of Jesus from adoption since Joseph wasn't his natural father. Luke saw detailed information about the lineage that came from Joseph since an adopted child who was brought into a family would inherit what was passed down. Luke records from Joseph all the way back to Adam. In Luke 3, 23 through 38. That's Jesus' only connection to Adam through an adopted lineage. Not physical. If it was physical, we'd be in trouble. No connection to the first Adam. Sin did not inherit in the body of Christ. He lived sinlessly so that he can be the perfect Lamb of God. Given on our behalf to satisfy the wrath of God. Listen, listen, man, this is all orchestrated by God. You look at the Old Testament and, and how God set up the sacrificial system and how Jesus fulfills that very sacrificial system. I'm about to lose breath on that. I can keep going. Like, it's amazing to see how God orchestrated redemption for us. The amazing part about this is that the father of Jesus was the father in heaven. But in his humiliation, he submitted himself to be under Joseph and Mary. John chapter 13, he's washing the feet of sinners, taking the lowest position. And Jesus, who deserved to be crowned with glory, was crowned with thorns and treated as a criminal. We see the healing ministry of Jesus. Luke records in Luke 4, 18 through 19, how Jesus read from the scroll about his fulfillment of what was written about the Messiah. In Luke 4, 18 through 19, 
He read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He fulfilled that. And Luke 440, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Listen, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Fulfilling messianic prophecy to the T. Fifth, Jesus shows great compassion, not just to the sick, but to those who were considered second class. An example of this could be found in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You know what Jesus would even do? Not only accept what she did, later he will forgive her of her sins, which he was criticized for. Luke wanted to convince and assure Theophilus that Jesus was compassionate and merciful even to women, sadly, who were treated as second-class citizens. Jesus went beyond the cultural norm and even what was expected to do what was right. A great example for us today. In chapter 8, we see the ministry of Jesus being supported by women. Luke shows us that from the very beginning, women played a vital role in the ministry of Jesus. And ladies, you do today. We need help. I'm just saying. <laughs> Statistically, women do more ministry in the church than men. Did you know that? I think it's like 60-40. You know, it's easy. Uh, we do believe uh, that women can't be pastors here. You know, we, we do believe that. But women play a vital role in our ministry. So don't get all caught up in your manhood. Matter of fact, men, we're slacking. Women pick up all the time what we're dropping. So I want to give a good shout out to the ladies of the Christian church who hold it down and help us to be the church. Thank you for what you do. See, there, there's much I could highlight, you know, uh, when it comes to the points of this book written by an educated man, a physician. This book is written to give certainty about the things that happen. These things happen and they are recorded by credible sources and from eyewitness accounts and from ministers who live with Jesus. It might have been James, the brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the Jerusalem church Maybe Peter, an apostle and disciple of Jesus. Maybe even Paul, an apostle called by Jesus. Or even the Virgin uh, Mary, who wasn't a virgin afterwards. She actually had other kids. 
But all must have shared what they saw with their own eyes, what Jesus did, which brings up the resurrection, how Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death on our behalf. Can we have certainty that he was victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave? I would say absolutely yes. Every time, like I complain all the time, that backache I always got that ain't going away. My feet be hurting. I know that death is waiting for me. But I know that it's a doorway. He died so that I can live eternally with him. Do you have certainty? This account was written to Theophilus, but thankfully, because it was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, it was written for us also. The great R.C. Sproul said this, hope is called the anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6.19 because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. He says, I wish that such, such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Do you have hope? More than ever, I think, me and Wayne did a podcast recently on deconstructionism. We need certainty in our time. It, it, it seems that many lack certainty in our day. Questions about God existing or if the Bible is true or more personally, can I find meaning in my life? Objective truth. Many have sought to answer these questions and concluded that no one can know for certain. But listen, I've come to know the hope that is the anchor of my soul. Because I have Christ as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Like Hebrews says, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having becoming a high priest for us. That's what he's doing now. On our behalf, carrying us, sympathizing with our weaknesses, living as the testament of redemption on our behalf before the Father. Luke gives us an orderly account that testifies of the ministry that gives certainty and assurance that God is true and that he sent his only son so that we could have everlasting life. So not just for the life to come, but we can also enjoy Presently, the life we have today. God is not about taking you out of the suffering, even though that's nice when he does. He's about working through the suffering and giving you a smile in the midst of destruction. Giving you a joy in the midst of everything broken. God can do that and has done that. The promise of eternal life and the hope we have in Christ is a sure anchor of the soul. It grounds us when we face troubling circumstances. I believe this gospel will do that for our church in this season. That's my hope for you as we go through the gospel of Luke. I pray that God would just give us a good foundation of certainty so that we can get to work. So that we can share the gospel with certainty. There's a story in closing of a sister named Brooklyn Salisbury. I don't know if you heard about her. This sister has a disease called hypermobile Edler's Danlos syndrome. 
This is what she said. I have a garden variety of diseases, she says. One of my core maladies is hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's a disorder of the connective tissue. She says, mine is too stretchy, so I'm literally, she says, falling apart. This type of EDS is not terminal. Fellow patients have expressed concern that they will also die prematurely. Nope, she says, this disease and their patients have a normal lifespan, she says. However, she has co-occurring diseases that accompanies her disease that's ending her life. She says dysfunction in her nervous system, immune system, digestive tract are so severe that her body can no longer cope. She says my body is like a busy secretary and can't multitask, except unlike a secretary, I can't fire my body. I read more posts about this sister, and she's ready to die. Now, some people might criticize that. Why don't she believe for healing? Listen, she can't wait to see Christ. She'd rather be with Jesus more than anything. She's not afraid to die. She had a picture of her playing the piano with a smile. Do you see what certainty does? You see what hope does? Now listen, this is what she said. After saying all that, this is what she said. My goal is to highlight God's strength in our weakness. His faithfulness in the midst of suffering, our future hope in Jesus beyond death. He alone is eternal, worthy, and then she says, and I am only temporarily sick. Did you catch that? He alone is eternally worthy, and I am only temporarily sick. Temporary. Hope is called the anchor of the soul because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish, this or such, and wish that rather it is that which latches onto certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. So I pray as we go through Luke, saints, that God will grant us certainty as we read through the Gospel of Luke of what took place. I pray that God will give us certainty to the point that even in the midst of facing great challenges, which will come, we can remember that Jesus is all we need. This book is about Jesus. And you need to be certain of what Luke is writing. I pray for us that that will be our season. There will be a year of certainty, a year of confidence in the Lord, no matter what happens in our church. God, would you grant us that by grace? Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us have certainty that we will live as convinced that we will share in a manner, God, that speaks of genuineness, of trust, and not perfect trust. Lord, none of us can reach what Jesus lived out. Jesus, we have perfect trust. Jesus, who was steadfast, 
Jesus who went through the worst, facing at the garden the wrath of God, bleeding even, praying intensely, but yet you persevered. God, help us to follow in your footsteps this season, that we will live with certainty, being convinced, not believing in fables or treating the gospel as something fake, but God, help us to understand that you are real and true. You live today as our high priest. May we go to those broken in our city, God, that need you. Those that are despised, those that aren't being gone to. May we be a church that goes to anyone and shares the gospel, that has hope for anyone, God. Because the gospel can take someone, no matter how much of the filth they're in, God, you can clean anyone. You can deliver anyone. May we go, God, desperately wanting to see people come to faith. God, will you provide workers? We need workers, Lord. Would you help us to, to have evangelists, to have teachers, Lord God, to have people that would, you know, till the ground to watch you then give the growth. Help us to water, help us to plant, but only you can give the growth. Would you help us, Lord? We pray for laborers in this harvest, in this field, that you will be glorified. I pray for those that might even question the gospel, for those who are just in discovery, those that are just investigating God, I pray you will have grace and mercy. I thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing here today. God, would you plant us, would you ground us in your truth? Would you sanctify us in your truth? God, would you remind us that the gospel needs to be shared, but also lived with certainty? So I ask so that you will be with us in this season. We thank you for the gospel of Luke that we'll get into. And I pray that as we finish it, no matter how long it takes, that as we're going through it, we will develop being witnesses. But as we get out of it, that we would then be missional. That you would send us out as witnesses of your glory, seeing and believing in the account given to us by Luke. More importantly, by the Holy Spirit inspired. We love you and we thank you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.